Well, hey, good morning, everybody. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. That's page 843 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. Um, you know, we as Americans, more than any other people group, more than any other nation, have this intrinsic sense of self-worth. We think that we're something. We think that we're entitled to something, right? Uh, we, we believe that naturally we have a great value, and because we are here, because we exist, we deserve certain things. We're owed certain things. Maybe it comes from our, our understanding, or maybe more accurately, our misinterpretation of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, I'm not real sure. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That all men are created equal, that we are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, because God has placed me here, He has given me absolute, unchallenging authority over myself, over my rights, that I should pursue life, liberty, and fulfillment. But we've somehow twisted this. We've, we've distorted it. We've, we've, we've just degenerated it into, I'm entitled to, I am owed life, freedom, and fulfillment, whether I work hard for it or not. Now, the sense of entitlement in which we say, you know, you owe me something, uh, leads us to two extremes. Either we think that if I work hard, I do this, I follow this plan, then I am entitled to whatever desired outcome I have, right? So, you know, if I work hard in school, then I am entitled to a job. And if I have a job, then I am entitled to salary, good benefits and retirement and all that kind of stuff. And if I work hard enough at that job for long enough, then I am entitled to be able to act on my retirement and so on it goes and things like that. And we just expect this is going to go towards my plan. If I follow this procedure, then I am owed something, right? This is my right. The other extreme in the sense of entitlement uh, this idea of you owe me is, is not centered on our works that we perform, but simply on the fact that we exist because we're here. Basically, we're saying, you know, uh, God, you put me here, so you owe me life. You owe me liberty. You owe me happiness, whether I'm willing to lift a finger to get it or not. I deserve that. I'm entitled to that. I'm owed that. God puts me here, so He owes me. I'm alive, and so somebody owes me all these things. Kids do this with their parents all the time, right? Students, you do this when you go in and you demand that higher grade from the the professor, even though you didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. Uh, Divisive, uh, disobedient, just kind of insubordinate employees do this with their employers when they make demands of them. Uh, Everyone is shaking their fist at the government, Right? I mean, it just happens over and over and over again. We've all fallen into this notion of intrinsic self-worth or this sense of entitlement that's either based upon our actions or because we simply exist. Now, the reason why I mention this is because it bleeds over into our relationship with God. Right? These are not separate categories like I do it over here in school, but I don't do it with the rest of my life. And if we took an honest look at ourselves, we'd find that we fall in one of these two categories. Either I'm performing these actions before God, and so God owes me, right? I've done the religious duties. I've gone to church. I've sang the songs. I've done this. I've taken the Lord's Supper. So be it. So God owes me what I want. I don't want those things that I'm doing. I don't want Him. I just want the reward, and so that's what I'm going after. Or... 
we kind of shake our fist at God and say, you know what, God, you put me here. I didn't ask to be here, and so you owe me. I deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I deserve these things, and so you owe me. We have this ingrained sense of, of self-worth, that, that we, we are entitled to something, right? We relate to him in one of these two senses. Everyone does this. God, you owe me because I worked hard, or God, you owe me because I'm here. You put me here. And an honest look at our responses to God and our relationship with God, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you would find you can uncover one or both of these actions. This is the attitude that you take when you approach Him. But let me ask you this. What if that's not the case? What if you don't have this sense of entitlement, this sense of self-worth, this you owe me before God? You know, last week we saw what happens when people approach Jesus with this sense of entitlement, with this idea that they were basically good, they could come to God, all they needed to do was perform some religious activities and they would be fine. They were entitled to what God owed them. But Jesus tells them, listen, everyone, every single person has a stain on their soul that causes them to be defiled before God. And you just can't wash that off by religious activities. You do not have inalienable rights here. Today, we are going to see what happens when a woman approaches Jesus, but she knows that she has no sense of self-worth. She has no entitlement. She knows that Jesus doesn't owe her anything. Though we all have no right to approach Him, Jesus is ready to save And so with that, let's read Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. And again, that's page 843 there in the Bibles in the chairs. And I'd encourage you to follow along. It said, And from there Jesus arose, and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And immediately a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home, and she found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. This story unfolds in a rest-seeking mission, a relentless plea, a surprising response, a great faith, and a merciful Lord. Now, I want you to hang with me as we go to this, because I've got to unpack some things, but I think in the end it'll be worth it. So bear with me. First, we learn from this passage that Jesus is on a rest-seeking mission. Uh, now, in, in terms of context, Jesus has just finished another very lengthy confrontation with the religious leaders of the day over this issue of defilement. What makes somebody unclean, unworthy to approach God? And for them, it was just a matter of, hey, you didn't follow the law. You didn't do the purification rituals. You came in contact with Gentiles. That's what defiles you, and that's all it is. 
And so Jesus, after this lengthy confrontation with these guys that are ready to trap him, ready to kill him, he decides, you know what, I need a break from this. And so he leaves the predominantly Jewish region of Galilee and he heads northwest up to that region of Tyre and Sidon, which is predominantly Gentile. And his intention for doing that is because, you know, the Jews wouldn't follow him into this unclean land. So he's there. He's trying to get away and rest. Now, this is something that he has been trying to do with his disciples since chapter 6, verse 31, and just has been unable to do it. They've been going and going and going and ministering over and over and over again, out of their exhaustion, out of the, the extension of like everything that they have, and they just need a break. They need to get away. And so it says in verse 24 that when he got to Tyre, he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know. Now, this seems a little surprising. I mean, as we think about Jesus and what he's here to do, uh, but there are a number of reasons for this secret vacation on Jesus' part. I mean, first of all, he and his disciples are just plain tired. They're exhausted. They're worn out from all that they've been doing. They've been, Jesus has been, has been out there. He's been teaching. He's been doing all these things. He's been confronting uh, the, the religious leaders. He's been healing and healing and healing. And, and this crowd just keeps thronging around him. And they're seemingly insatiable in their desire. They're never satisfied, never content, never understanding. And so he just wants to get away from them. But second, we have to remember that that crowd is around him because they don't, they're there for the wrong reasons. They don't really understand who Jesus is. They think that, okay, uh, you know, he's able to heal people and this is really fantastic. I need healing. I'm going to go to him. Or they're just, they like the entertainment of it all. Like, look at what this guy can do. He's a spectacle. Or some people, many people are, are just like, they're looking for a political figure, right? They're ready to take Jesus at, by force and make him their king. And so Jesus has to get away from that. But also he's dealing with these religious leaders who are out to kill him or trying to trap him at every turn and he just wants a break from them. And not to mention the fact that Herod, the quote-unquote king of Israel, the, the token king, right, the governor under Roman authority, he's heard about Jesus, right? And he thinks that he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Well, Herod was the one that killed John the first time, so you think he's not willing to do it again, right? And so Jesus is there trying to just get out of the way, right? Uh, he's trying to recuperate uh, both physically and spiritually. And so Jesus heads up to Tyre as quietly and as inconspicuously as possible, thinking primarily that this Jewish crowd wouldn't follow him up into this predominantly Gentile area. He's seeking rest, but verse 24 is clear that he won't find it. It says that Jesus could not be hidden. His fame could not be quenched. Right? People understood. They knew about it. Maybe it was because of there was a number of people that had come down from Tyre and Sidon back in chapter 3, verse 8, that have heard and seen what he's done, and now they've gone back and reported. And so as soon as Jesus enters their land, they know about it, and they're all over it. So it seems that Jesus' rest-seeking, crowd-escaping mission has failed, but I don't think that this is the only reason that Jesus goes up to Tyre. Right? I don't think he's just doing it for himself to take a little vacation. You know, um, Mark likes to paint certain pictures of themes you know, and, and teach them to his audience through, through these interactions that Jesus has. And one of these big themes that comes up over and over again in the book of Mark is one of insiders and outsiders. 
the insiders are those who, who ought to be on the inside, the Jews, the religious leaders of the day. But they end up finding themselves on the outside. Right? Because they don't, they can't grasp who Jesus is. And so there's all these interactions that show that they just don't get it. And then there are the outsiders. There's those Gentiles. There's those people that they could, they shouldn't be able to approach Jesus. They shouldn't be able to come to Him. But yet they do. And they find themselves on the inside. Um, Jesus has already encountered Gentiles. We have to keep that in mind. It happened in chapter 3 with this huge crowd. It happened in chapter 5 when once again we see Jesus leaving this huge uh, Jewish crowd and he goes across a raging sea almost sinking the boat with his disciples and everybody in it only to go across and encounter a a Gentile, one Gentile man with 2,000 demons, right? And he, he heals this man. He calls this Gentile man to be his first missionary and then he heads back to the other side. Right, And so you see that, that this is the pattern for Jesus, that there's a difference between those who are inside and outside. Those who are inside are left on the outside. Those who ought to be on the outside become insiders. But he also does this to fulfill God's promises, to fulfill God's promises to the Gentiles, to fulfill God's promises to Tyre. Okay, Tyre is a significant city in the Old Testament. It comes up over and over and over again. I mean, first we see Tyre appear when God gives the promised land to Israel. All right? Tyre was included in that land area. Tyre was a part of the land that was given to Asher, but it was quickly lost during the time of the judges, and it was never gained back. Not in the time of, of David, not in the time of Solomon, in the pinnacle of the, the kingship of Israel, Tyre was never again to belong to him as they did in that first moment. But we do see that with, with David and Solomon that there was this time of blessing that Tyre had received. Tyre, uh, the king of Tyre, Hiram, was influential, was, was a great help in building both the palace and the temple for David and Solomon consecutively. And so what we see is that God is continuing to bless Tyre as Tyre is a blessing to the people. That God's blessing is extended through His people to Tyre. These promises are, are, are beginning to be fulfilled and, and we're seeing that. But unfortunately, it kind of goes wrong. Things go downhill. Years later, the king of Israel, Ahab, marries Jezebel from Tyre. And if you are familiar at all with the story of Ahab and Jezebel, she was not a good lady. And she ends up bringing a lot of idolatry into Israel. Uh, A little while later, you see that the kings and princes of Tyre, they begin to become proud. And they begin to sort of uh, neglect their covenant that they'd made with Israel. They started making covenants with other more powerful nations and actually going to war against Israel. And so God looks at this and said, you are my blessed you know, you are receiving the blessing through my people, and now you're rejecting that. And so he brought a lot of condemnation upon the nation of Tyre. He did it through Isaiah. He did it through uh, Jeremiah, through Ezekiel. He did it through Joel. He did it through Amos and Zechariah. Over and over again, these pronouncements of judgment are made against Tyre. But yet, intermingled with those judgments were also promises. Promises that, that Tyre would be restored. Promises that that God would not completely abandon her, even though she's a Gentile city. It's amazing. And even prior to this event here in Mark 7, Jesus has pronounced woes against the Jewish cities like Bethsaida and Chorazin. He said, 
For mighty, if mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon as they've been done in you, they would have long ago repented in sackcloth and ashes. He says this back in Matthew 11. And this passage that we're looking at in Mark 7 is equivalent to Matthew 15. So this happened right before. And so what we're seeing here with Jesus interacting with this woman from Tyre is that God is keeping his promises and that Jesus is serious when he says, listen, those things, you know, if these things would have happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Here's proof. This is really happening. Right? This woman, it gives evidence to that reality. And so as Jesus makes his way from, from this point through chapter 8, verse 9, Jesus is going through these Gentile areas, and we see that the Gentiles are eager. They're ready. They're willing to repent and believe, even though Jesus doesn't teach there. Jesus goes through. He heals people as they come to him based upon his faith, and they're ready to believe. They've got all this information about it. They're ready to go. So the, the Jews don't get it, but the Gentiles are eager. And so you see that this is, is coming to pass. And so this is amazing. Because we see that even when Jesus is seeking rest, even when he's on a rest-seeking mission, he's actually on a rest-giving mission. He's about fulfilling God's promises to, from his Old Testament to, to, to the Gentiles. He's, he's working towards opening that door. And, and though he cannot remain hidden, he's there. And, and he's gone first to the Jews in order to fulfill God's promises to them. But he's also he's opening this way to the Gentiles. This is, this is a great and lasting promise. This promise applies to us. We're seeing this begin to unfold. We see it continue even in our day that Jesus is intentional about everything. This is no accident. He knows people's hearts and he's ready to give them rest. And so Jesus is on this rest-seeking mission that second is extended to a woman with a relentless plea. Now look again at verses 25 through 26. It says, But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So though Jesus is trying to remain hidden, that's just not an option. I mean, as soon as he gets up there, as soon as he gets in the house, as soon as they close the door, people get word and they start thronging around. And the first person that shows up is this woman who has a daughter with an unclean spirit. She must have heard the stories from those who had gone down. Maybe she was among that crowd from chapter 3 that had gone down to Galilee and heard and seen all that Jesus had done. Or maybe she heard testimony from those that had been there, from th things like chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that He had healed many. And whenever unclean spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And so this is immediately get a ring with her, right? Her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So she came. She bolts. She gets there immediately. She forces her way into his presence, falling down at his feet. She is desperate. Her daughter has an unclean spirit. Matthew adds that this little girl was severely oppressed by a demon. I mean, who knows what all they had experienced. We don't know where, where her husband is. We don't know where her family is. We're only given that it's this woman and her little daughter. And who knows how young this girl is. She could be seven. She could be eight. And imagine what she's doing. She's severely oppressed. She could be cutting herself. She could be performing violent acts on herself or in violent rages towards other people. 
She could be experiencing epileptic seizures and all kinds of crazy things. She could be in gross immorality, performing and saying all sorts of lewd things. This little girl, as she's severely oppressed by a demon, our hearts ought to go out for this situation. Who knows how bad it is? But we know that it's bad. And this mother, she's desperate. She would do anything to see her daughter freed from this terrible demon. And so her resolve is as relentless as this oppression is towards her daughter. She didn't let her position stop her either. It says that this woman is a Gentile. She's considered unclean by the Jews, much less a rabbi. She was a Syrophoenician, meaning that she came from the district of Phoenicia, which was in the region of of of, of Syria. Now that doesn't really matter to you, except that what this is saying is she is a pro-Roman pagan. All right, her government and the gods that she worships are what the Jews hate. Matthew adds that she's a Canaanite, a people cursed by God for their wickedness, left to be exterminated. So here she is. She is a doomed Canaanite pro-Roman, idol-worshipping woman from a cursed city of Tyre with an unclean daughter. All right, She is the lowest of the low. She has no right to approach him. This is Jesus, a Jewish rabbi. She has no business. She is worse than a tax collector. Right? She has no right to be there whatsoever. And she knows it. She knows that she has no right. She, she cannot approach him. She has no sense of worth. She's not only unclean, she is untouchable. She is disqualified from approaching someone like Jesus. She has no sense of entitlement. She has no right to be there. But she doesn't let that stop her. Her need compels her. No doubt she had sought the pagan gods over and over again about this issue and, and it's come to no effect and she is left with no other option. She hears about Jesus and she runs and she falls at his feet and she begs him to cast this demon out of her daughter. Matthew adds in his account in chapter 15 verse 22 that she persistently cried out over and over and over again. And she said, have mercy on me, O Lord. Son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Her determined and incessant cry actually resulted in the disciples asking Jesus to send her away because she was about to blow their cover. They were embarrassed and they said, Jesus, just get rid of her. But she, she falls on her knees and she says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Her relentless plea is astonishing. She begs Jesus for help and mercy. She declares Him to be Lord. She calls Him the Son of David, the Messiah, the Christ. She understands more than the Jews, more than the religious leaders, and at this point, more than even Jesus' disciples as to who He is. And she proclaims that. Perhaps she's shocked to understand what the demons meant when they said, We know who you are, the Holy One of God. But she knows. And though she has no rights, though she cannot stand on her own position, on her own qualification, on her own sense of worth, she comes to Jesus and she pleads for mercy. She approaches the Lord 
knowing that she is not worthy, she draws near to the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, though she is alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. She knows that she is an undeserving sinner. And she pleads for mercy. Unlike the Jews who have stood before Jesus thinking that they are entitled, she knows that she's not. And it fuels her relentless plea. But her persistent begging is met third by a very surprising response. So here's this desperate mother, and she's doing anything she can for her child. She's there, she's selflessly sacrificing. It's not hard to feel for her. It's not hard to kind of see and get a sense of the desperation that she experiences. If you have a kid, you know what I'm talking about. But even if you don't, you can relate. She is there begging and pleading Jesus for help. She's humbling herself. She falls on her knees before Him. Matthew then says you know, that she calls Him Lord. She calls Him Son of David. She's praying for mercy. And what does Jesus do? He ignores her. He disregards her. He pays no attention to anything that she says. He just keeps going. But here she keeps crying out over and over and over. And then finally the disciples have had enough. They are embarrassed for her. And they're pleading with Jesus, just shut this woman up. Get her out of here. And so what Jesus does at that point is that he addresses them. He, he talks past her. You know, it's one of those conversations you have like you're trying to make a statement over here, but you're talking over here. You want her to hear and understand, but I'm talking to you. That's what happens. And so it says, I w-, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she responds, Lord, help me. And then in verse 27, and he said to her, let the children first be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is not the reaction that you would expect from Jesus. He snubs her. He talks bad. He talks at her, and then he calls her a dog. Now, he's not using slang for the word friend, like "Hey, what's up, dog? How's it going?" He's not doing that. And he's not trying to invoke cuddly images of your favorite pet, right? A dog is an unclean, detestable animal to the Jews, right? They're, like even they, some people argue about different words that are used here, and maybe this is a nicer version. No, it's, they're gross animals according to the Jews. There's no good way. He's, he's calling her a dog, a name. You know, it's, it's gross. You know, it's like, it's like us calling her a pig, So what's with Jesus' reaction here? I mean, do you ever think about that? What, what possesses him to do this? I mean, is he, is he angry? You know, is he like, he's mad because he didn't get his nap, you know? And so now he's taking it out on this woman, he's calling her names. Is, is Jesus some kind of bigot, like a, a Gentile woman hater? Is he sinning against her? I mean, what's going on? He's calling her names, he's running her down. He's being malicious and spiteful. I mean, can Jesus be so indifferent and so insensitive towards her and her situation? This doesn't seem right to us. This doesn't make sense to us. But no, the answer to all those questions is no. Jesus does not sin. Jesus always tells the truth. He's not being selfish here. 
We have to remember that Jesus is, is characterized by compassion and love, not hatred and indifference. And we've already seen back in chapter 5 that he has cast out a legion of Gentile, or a legion of demons out of this Gentile man who, who knows what his sin was. And so why wouldn't he do the same for an innocent little girl? Why not? So why does he respond this way? What's his intention here? Jesus is continually doing things that we would not expect. But he always does them for a purpose. He always has something in mind. This event is placed here on the heels of chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, to teach us some important lessons. Jesus has been in a dispute with these religious leaders of the day over this issue of defilement. And these guys have thought to themselves, they believe that because they were Jews, they had a privileged position before God. They were entitled. They were owed because of who they were. They were worthy. They were entitled, not like these Gentiles. And so in order for them to be right with God, they just had to perform some religious duties, and and that's all it took. Unlike these Gentiles who could do nothing to be pure before God. But Jesus tells them that their defilement comes from within and there's nothing that you can do to clean yourself. In other words, he's saying that no one, absolutely no one is worthy. Not Jew, not Gentile. No one is entitled to anything because everyone has a stain on their soul that leads them to sin against God. No one has a right to stand before him. And in the very next scene comes this woman who is clearly by all Jewish standards, unclean. She has no right before God, and she knows it. And yet she comes. Jesus always tells the truth, right? He's telling the truth here. And so so when Jesus ignores her and she comes, Jesus snubs her and she comes, Jesus calls her a dog, saying, you are defiled, you are unclean. He's telling her the truth about herself, and still she comes. She still comes. And so what you see is that Jesus is setting a contrast between her and the Jews. They think they are worthy. They think they are clean. They think that they do not see who He is and why they need Him, and so they don't come. But she knows that she's not worthy. She knows that she's unclean. She understands who Jesus is and what He is doing, and she falls on her knees before Him and pleads for mercy. And so there's a stark contrast here that Mark is trying to teach us about. Not only does Jesus teach contrast here with this the, the unbelieving Jews and, and her, but also Jesus does this to convey a promise. Although He is first and foremost fulfilling the Old Testament promises of the law to the Israelites, He will open a door to the Gentiles as well. It's right there in His response. He said, let the children be fed First, children are the Israelites, dogs are the Gentiles. But he said, let the children be first. It's not right to take the the bread from the children and give it to the dogs. But he doesn't say, let the dogs starve. He says, no, the children first, then the dogs. I will come, I will make a way. And as soon as he's raised from the dead, his first command before his ascension to his disciples was that they were to go and to make disciples of all nations, Jew and Gentile alike. The door's now open. This woman is the first fruits of that promise. 
But another reason Jesus responds this way is that though he's not sinning against her, he's actually drawing out her faith. In the same way that he did with the hemorrhaging woman back in chapter 5, verses 24 through 34. He is testing her to see if what she believes about him will be expressed in her actions. And that's exactly what we see in verse 28. Jesus' surprising response is followed forth by a great faith. Look with me at at verses 27 and 28. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. By responding the way he does, Jesus draws out this woman's faith. I mean, think about it. His identity is shadowed so that she might hear and believe. His location is hidden so that she might seek Him out. He ignores her so that she would plead for mercy. He does not acknowledge her so that she would fall on her knees and declare Him to be the Lord, the Son of David. He talks past her so that she would ask for help. And He calls her a dog so that she would affirm her true position before Him. In all these ways, Jesus is drawing her out. In each of these dealings, Jesus is, is drawing out her faith. He is, she is giving evidence of her belief in Christ, not through her words and through her, her actions. I mean, emotionally, who knows? Maybe this woman was a very boisterous woman who didn't take no for an answer. And so Jesus is humbling her. Who knows? But nevertheless, Jesus draws it out to where she gives testimony to her true faith. We do have to remember that this woman is not a selfish, superstitious woman who is ignorant of who Jesus is. She is a desperate, selfless mother who understands more about Jesus than even his disciples do. They're still asking, who is this then? That even the wind and the waves obey him. When Jesus calls her a dog, she doesn't get angry. Does she? She said, I'm happy with the crumbs. She doesn't get up from her prostrate position and say, you know what? Forget you. You are a racist jerk. I cannot believe this. I came here. I ran after you. I fell down on my knees and humbled myself before you. And I'm pleading with you because I'm in a desperate situation. All I want is for my little girl to be freed from this demon. And you couldn't give a rip, you racist jerk. What are you doing? Stop throwing racial slurs at me and help me out. I mean, think about that. Most of us, if we were in that position, that's exactly what we do. How dare you treat me this way? I have rights. You show me some more respect. You owe me. But she doesn't. She say, yeah, I'm a dog. Help me. Instead, she humbly and wisely responds, Yes, Lord, what you say of me is true. I do not deserve to be here. I have no right. I have no seat at your table. But I believe that there is more than enough at your table to satisfy the world with your crumbs. And that's all I want. That is all I need, and I need it now. Lord, don't give me what I deserve. 
I'm a dog. I'm unclean. I am a sinner. Give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness and your mercy. In every way, she humbly affirms Jesus' critique that she is entitled to nothing. But she pleads on the basis of his sufficiency, his sovereignty, his goodness, his mercy. And it's in seeing this response that we learn about the true nature of faith. In no particular order, we can see what faith looks like. Faith is humble. But she approaches Christ without pride, unable to boast in her position. She knows that she is an idol-worshipping outsider who has rejected and rebelled against God. She has sinned against Him. She's tried to live her life without Him. And so she doesn't assume anything. But she comes to Jesus in true humility. Faith is informed. She knows and testifies that Jesus is both Lord and the Son of David. She understands who He is, but also who she is in light of Him. She knows she's a dog. She knows she's an undeserving sinner. Faith is persistent. She does not let her position or, or Jesus' seeming unresponsiveness deter her from her mission, from her relentless pursuit of Him. She continues to persist. Faith is submissive. It submits to Christ even when He calls her a dog. Faith is worship. She falls down on her knees before Him. Faith is desperate in prayer. This woman continually and persuasively cries out to Jesus. She does not because she deserves her right, but she pleads on the basis of His character, of His actions, and of His Word. That ought to be informing our prayer. Faith trusts, even when you don't know what's going to happen. Faith hopes, gratefully accepting even the crumbs at Jesus' table. Faith is selfless. She persevered out of love for her daughter. She wasn't there for herself. Faith is immediate. She did not wait. Her prompt response is evidence of her faith. And her faith is Christ-focused. Right? She pleads to Christ on the basis of who He is and what He has done. Not on her works, not on herself, but upon Him and what He is, and what He has done. It's only here that we can begin to apply this passage. Does this list of descriptions of the true nature of faith depict your belief in Christ? Is that characteristic of of your faith as it's expressed in your actions, as it's expressed in your thoughts, as it's expressed in your words? Does your faith in the gospel come with the realization that you are, like this woman, far more wretched than you could dare to imagine, but far more loved and far more accepted than you even dared to hope? Is your faith expressed in concrete, humble action the way hers is, or do you live as if God owes you something? And are you content with the crumbs from the Master's table?
Do you realize that God owes you nothing? You have no rights before Him. No sense of worth. No, no sense of entitlement. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We have all lived as rebels against Him. Trying to live our life without Him. Or when it's only convenient with us. But basically trying to live as if this is my world and I'm God. I'll, I'll use you when I need you. But this is my world. Our sin has separated us eternally from God. Like this woman, we are unclean, idol-worshipping, God-hating, undeserving, cursed Gentiles. That is who we are. In every way, we are just like her in position. Whatever good we can do, whatever noble actions we can perform, cannot make up for that. They cannot Yes, this woman is displaying a great faith here in this moment, but it is not enough to overcome all her sin. Neither are her pathetic attempts at humility and faith. She is utterly dependent upon Jesus for grace. You see, great faith is nothing apart from fifth, merciful Lord. This woman is entitled to nothing, even after this great display of faith. Jesus is not obligated to do anything for her. All her begging and pleading, all her prostration, all her declarations that Jesus is Lord and the Son of God merit her nothing. Jesus is not obligated to do anything for her. Nothing. He doesn't need to respond. But He does. In verses 29 and 30, he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home, and she found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. He says to her, What an answer. In Matthew, he states, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you, for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, without a doubt, her response is a demonstration of great faith. But lest you think for a moment that faith is the determining factor that somehow obligates Jesus to free her daughter, then we must remember that it was Jesus who went to that city. It was Jesus who had performed many miracles and done many wonders so that she heard of his fame and that she went to see him. It was Jesus' actions that drew out her faith. It was Jesus who is declaring her faith acceptable. It is Jesus who with the word, even at a distance, even though he's never laid eyes on her daughter, makes the command and the demon flees. This was not a result of her faith, but of his grace. This is not a story about the greatness of this Gentile woman's faith, but of the intentional, unmerited, sovereign grace of God in Jesus Christ. She deserves nothing, but He gives it freely. Now what I don't want you to do is to walk out of here and think, I need to be more like this woman. I need to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. I need to make my faith look like this and this and this and this. Right? This is not a try harder message. Our response should be that we revel that we marvel, that we praise God and honor Him and give Him glory for the undeserved grace of God in Jesus Christ. He is on a mission 
to draw out those that relentlessly plead for Him because they know that they have no rights before Him. They are not surprised by the fact that He doesn't owe them anything. But yet, because of who He is, and by because of what He has done on the cross by dying for sin, and by rising from the grave to restore sinners to God, they rest in Him. They approach Him boldly and confidently because Jesus is a merciful Lord. That's the takeaway. That's what I want you to hear. And I want you to praise God for that. And may we feast on the crumbs from our Master's table. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank You that though we are sinful, though we are undeserving, though we are defiled, and we have no right, no sense of entitlement to approach you, that you can extend grace. And God, I pray for those who are here now, that, that our eyes and our hearts would be open to the truth of your word, maybe for the first time. And I pray that we would stop living for ourselves, That we would stop thinking that Christianity is simply another form of Judaism. Where all we have to do is perform certain rituals and we are okay. But all the while, our hearts are not truly resting and receiving Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would be overwhelmed with the, the unbelievable, unmerited grace of God that is continually there through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, help us. Help us to see that. Help us to be like this woman, that, that we would not be uh, bound by our undeserving nature, but that we would, it would cause us to all the more see our need for Him and run to Him and plead with Him and accept the truth about ourselves and the truth about Him and receive grace and mercy because You offer that freely through Jesus Christ. And so God, I pray that we would not leave here without responding to that in some way that our hearts would acknowledge the fact that we can only approach boldly this throne of grace through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.